0: my name is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Michael Shepard. Michael is an adjunct professor of intercultural studies and political science at Hope International University in Fullerton, California. He did his graduate studies in community development and nonprofit management at Hope, and then intercultural studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. His background is in nonprofit management and community organizing, but now he's a stay-at-home dad, which gives him some time to focus on his research and writing about church and culture. He's also a dad like me, desperate for adult interaction, which you'll hear a little bit throughout our conversation. So welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, how's it going? Hey, and for our listeners, as we're recording this, Michael, I've been saving, I've been holding this. Uh, yesterday was your birthday, right?
1: It it was my birthday.
0: Yeah, so happy well, birthday. I guess, it,
1: I guess it depends on when you when you post this. When we are recording <laughs> it, it is yes. my birthday.
0: Yes, as we're recording that. Uh, his birthday was yesterday, so this will probably air a couple, three months. We'll see down the road. So Michael, if you get a bunch of like random birthday celebration notifications, this That's is fine. Why. You
1: you can send cash. My address is.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can. We'll we'll drop the uh, the Venmo or whatever in the show notes. Um. All right. Let's get back to it. <laughs> tell tell our listeners uh, what else they, uh what else you'd like them to know about yourself
1: yeah um, well, glad to be here and thank you for having me on i've been uh, listening since you started and uh, excited to think about the future of the church and uh, ways that we can be more intentional about moving into that uh, the my uh my role at, at hope has been exciting uh, i get to work with our international programs and students who are trying to connect in the community and um we could have a lot of conversations like this, and I know that I've mm-hmm. i forwarded your your podcast and I've linked your guests over to our, our faculty and our students, and always happy to talk about what's possible.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, talk a little bit about um, your story of faith, how you how, what what that looks like today, and what it looked like in your in your youth. How you came to Christ, I guess.
1: Well, that's always an exciting question. Yeah. Um, i i uh well, i grew up in, in a family that was around ministry and i i was i was telling someone the other day that my dad was a bit of a mad scientist of a sunday school teacher mm-hmm. and uh, like a lot of teenage christians i got really into apologetics yeah and and uh my my dad saw that happening and he assigned to me marcus borg's meeting jesus again for the first time oh yeah as kind of kind of kick my butt and get me to stop being so apologetics driven Mm. (laughs) um and he's a mad scientist i say because we went we went on from there we read um dietrich bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship and then Mm. Mm brendan manning's ragamuffin gospel so that that was what i would have been like 16 17 um with that and all of that kind of put in my mind um a sense of of call to the church and ministry And I I had met alumni from Hope, and I was excited about what they were doing, innovating in ministry and doing some neat things. Uh, So I moved from very rural Oregon to Orange County, California, which was a bit of a culture shock. Mm. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about that later, probably. But uh, yeah, yeah, got met up with great faculty, great students um, that I was able to to be with, um, who were thinking about how we can do ministry differently. And um, how to live our faith in ways that um, really bring us bring us life, um, not just not just doing the things that we had had always done, and that um, has kind of taken me twists and turns. Um, thought that that I would be doing missions work, um, but mm-hmm. when we graduated, my spouse and I we both got jobs working at non-Christian nonprofits in Orange County, which is not where we mm. thought we would be. Um, yeah. but, but that took us. Um, into it, into a, just a different context for, for living our faith in ways that weren't church-based, um, and and being introduced to wider ways to understand who we are and and how we live faithfully.
0: Awesome. Now, Michael, when you say, I'm guessing we're similar in age here, when you say like getting into apologetics, like I think of like Josh McDowell, Evidence to Demand the Verdict. Yeah, I read that. Uh, Case, oh, for,
1: c- case for christ case um, for Christ. yeah and, and i i just remember like um uh that th- i had s- th- there was such a there was such a desire for there to be like this rational proof for mm-hmm. christianity that um i'm i'm glad that i was maybe i was inoculated from mm-hmm. that um that so i teach world religions now um, and whenever I meet folks who are in that stage of, you know, how, how, do you prove Christianity or how you disprove someone else's religion? Um, they found out I teach world religions. And they wanted like, we had someone over, um, at our house at a party one time and, and he was asking me like, what do I say to people who are Hindu to hmm. prove that Christianity is true? Like what is the yeah. what is the one sentence that is like <laughs> mic drop moment walk away yeah. and yeah. they're going to convert and is like it just kind of reminded me like how how far off like interfaith encounter is mm-hmm. versus this idea that we've had about Christianity that that you can prove it true somehow um, yeah. and and that you can prove it true in in a laboratory or on the page and that that's going to produce results when faith that is healthy christianity that is healthy has to be lived out and it always will be mm-hmm. ambiguous but there's so much more freedom in that there's so much more freedom in not having to yeah. have a faith that relies on this perfect logical argument or um constructing the straw man's exactly to <laughs> uh, so you, to, to always your win. dad
0: really your dad really did kick your butt when he gave you marcus borg
1: he did i, I think that he like I, I don't know how much of it was like punishment payback for having a teenage son <laughs> and how much <laughs> of it was just his like his nerdiness about like finally someone I can talk to <laughs> <laughs> but no it was I mean he, he's he, 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 he's always been um someone who has taken an inclusive look at at faith and so it's a, a great model for like what ministry looks like with without having to be right without having mm. to be without having to hold power or having without having to hold intellectual power over someone else. And that's what I see a lot of apologetics now is trying to create and hold intellectual power over someone else. just Wow, we could There's a lot that we're going to talk talking about tonight about talking, about <laughs> <laughs> talking about lots of things. So, I'll come back.
0: Come back to that if we have time. I'm writing that down. I'm writing that down. We'll talk about a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you or you might recommend to others.
1: Yeah, uh, well, the main thing that that um, we've talked about and what we're going to be talking about today is uh, contextualization. And uh, a lot of that I, I picked up while I was at Fuller, while I was studying world Christianity and a spiritual practice that um, has been really meaningful for me the last um, 10 years at least has been reading contextual theology and um, biblical studies from cultures that aren't my own. Um, mm-hmm. And appreciating the insight that that people have who are reading reading scripture, who are thinking about theology in their own their own language and their own their own perspective, um, it, mm-hmm. it gets me out of my echo chamber, and it gets me yeah. out gets me away from from um, the privilege that I carry about how how the Bible has always been presented, or how how theology has always been presented. Um, so that that's the spiritual practice that' I've, I've developed is, is really spending time um, with perspectives outside my own. Um, the, what where that has turned up a notch lately has been reading other people not just for insight um, not not just trying to take away what's good from them or to you know claim that I have greater like I don't Columbus their insight mm, um, mm-hmm. but but thinking more about how does this, Move me to action. When I read mm. something, when I read liberation theology from mm-hmm. uh, from qu- queer people in Africa, that should mm-hmm. that should motivate me to concern, And that should motivate me to action. Not just, oh, that's interesting, that's different. Yeah, like that. That there can be this like exoticism about non-Western yeah. perspectives, yeah. Um, especially um, in in some circles. If the Western, if Western society has become so problematic to the church they look to places like africa asia um, as the future because the future is outside the west
0: yeah um, yeah but
1: but there's the last decade or so there's been a lot written about like you know it's it's the the third world is going to save the north american church and um, and there's and there's just um there 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 is some truth to that but there's also some um latent colonialism built into that um Hmm. which again we can talk about this (laughs) some other time (laughs) and i guess like and then what's exciting for me is is um there's this assumption that the global church is is very conservative um Mm -hmm. that is that is something that i that i'm starting to dig into and appreciate more is that being part of a inclusive progressive church and denomination um Mm -hmm. how how the how the world church is not this monolithic conservative block. We saw a bit of that in the um, United Methodist church and um, the same, similar thing is happening in the um, ACNA church that um, the Anglican communion of North America, um, that, that
0: they're
1: trying to, trying to rely on, an appeal to global conservative Christians as a way to, to uh, boost a domestic North American conservative church. Yeah. And that's just, um, you know, and so that's part of, of um, what I'm, what I'm getting into researching now and what I want to be able, I want to be able to support churches that are exploring what it means to live authentically and value whole, whole people. um, Even if the, their religious culture isn't as supportive of that.
0: We don't have time to talk about this, but I just saw this today on on Twitter, Michael, the this like global there's like this newly forming Methodist, like global Methodist or something. I don't yeah. know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it fits, it's kind of fitting into that um that trend you're talking about. Uh but let's talk about um contextualization and t- tell us more uh, tell me more about kind of how you got into that and what that looks like
1: yeah um well uh, a lot of it had to do with just trying to understand my own experience i i moved from a from a very rural part of oregon to orange county and that was that was culture shock and to give you an idea Mm -hmm. of that my my church back home was a converted stable and oh wow and so i went from from going to church in a barn to uh, (laughs) working at a mega church with a brand new multi-million dollar campus. In Anaheim wow. Hills, uh, so that took some getting used to. Um, yeah, it. I. I, I wish that I. I had better self awareness at the time because I, I. did things that I, like. I didn't realize that that. Uh, how much that change would affect me. Um, but mm. like, w- we talk so much about like. If, if people move overseas or if people move from an international setting to the US, like what is, what is their adjustment period? And I, I mm-hmm. did not have one. <laughs> um, so, so that was, that was back then and a few other experiences like that. And Uh-oh. then uh, when I was at Fuller, uh, I was studying world Christianity and getting more of the theory behind what works and what, what works well and what doesn't not just in an American setting, but, but around the world.
0: All right, Michael. So when you talk about contextualization, what does that look like in an American setting?
1: It's in all of the ways that we translate to be better understood by culture or uh, or the culture of the people we're trying to to connect with. And as culture is always evolving, churches are adapting to that as well. And there are some churches that resist doing this, um, some, mm-hmm. that, some that do it in unhealthy ways. But the hope is that we can be intentional about adaptations, so that we are engaging people in ways that make sense. Uh, a big okay. way that we've seen that just in this last year has been how churches have adapted to virtual space. Yeah. That that I mean, it's something that that churches, some churches did before 2020.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: um, everyone had to figure out how do we how do we adjust? Um, yeah, and that that that's an adjustment to the culture It's a technology adjustment to the culture. Um, mm-hmm. And, and some people resist doing that. Some people do it in unhealthy ways, and but the goal is that we're intentional and we adapt well. Let me give you another example. Um, yeah. This this is uh, from from some of my, my research um, talking about contextualization. Um, I was I was interviewing a pastor at uh, a very large church mm-hmm. here 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 in our town, and um, talking about you know what is their what is their their community um how do they how do they see themselves as part of the community how Mm -hmm. do how do they connect with people um what's what's their what's the what's their thought process and uh the what really stuck out to me was um he he was very direct to say our target demographic are people who shop at the brea mall
0: oh yeah yeah
1: um, for, he said for you know for for our church the the people that were anyone who would shop at the the Brea mall which was you know the mall that's 2 miles down the street from their church anyone mm-hmm. who shops there um are are the people who we're trying to reach so yeah. that that geography is you know it's it's about a i don't know 10 15 mile radius around where their church is um and and it, in his mind it, it kind of like makes regional sense like mm-hmm. we're here in Orange County they're not trying to have someone you know drive an hour, two hours from the other side of Los Angeles to come to their yeah. church, um, to say who are the people who are here, um, that and so it had a geographic sense, but the other components of that are thinking about economically who shops at the mall, yeah, and uh, and who does the mall cater to? Who is who is the mall's yeah. audience? Um, yes, and 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 then we you, you, so you take that um, this this social. Uh, set of people who would shop at the Brem Mall—that's mm-hmm. become this church's demographic. And yeah. if and and then you think through how church is constructed, it it makes sense along those lines. If you're walking on this church's campus, it looks exactly like the Brem Mall. Uh, if you are dropping off your kids, um, it looks like where there's childcare from the mall. Um, the the way that you are the parking. Like they have a parking garage that looks, you know, that is the same structure, um, and all of it's the, you know, the positive intent in that is that you're trying to lower the barriers to people right, right. coming coming on campus, um, and if people are already familiar with going to, yep, a place in the community like like the yep. Ram Mall, um, it it can lower some of that resistance. Um, yep, and, and you think you know, and so that that becomes how you think about the space. It's air conditioned. There are. There are refreshments, there's coffee, there's a, a food court, there's um, the, the communication, the, the banners, um, all of those things are to meet the cultural expectations of people for where they spend their time, where they connect, where they spend their money, um, that all of those things get wrapped up in um, how, they, how they talk about membership, how they talk about financial support, how yeah. they do spiritual formation, and all that becomes... Parts of church, yeah, and it's and that looks very different than a ch- than a church who doesn't have that same same demographic, um, but it also means that there's people who that church who might live right across the street from that church who would never feel welcome there because they don't shop at the mall. Yeah,
0: grandma. yeah,
1: and it's kind of it's a bit of a shift in thinking about like who are we trying to reach? Um, that um, I think a lot of churches think geographically like well, we we want to reach everyone. Right, and you try and reach everyone, but then you don't have the same sense of of purpose and direction. Mm-hmm. or your sense of um, you, you design your church to be for the people who you already have and not thinking about who else might be, yeah, might be available. Yeah. Um who else is looking for a type of spiritual community that we can provide? Or when you do think about how to innovate for the church, um, I'll speak for myself and I'll say, other white clergy church leaders. We design mm-hmm. church to be interesting for our seminary friends.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong. You're not and, wrong.
1: And, but, but, really like those are some of the people who we have the closest relationships with and some of the mm-hmm. people who, who have, we have the most connection to and understanding yep. of, yep. it takes a lot of work to understand your community. Yeah, and it takes a lot of work to understand people who are not similar to you and yeah. and and if 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 christian community has been something that's that's a, a big deal to people um that's a major part of formation being able to communicate to people who don't already have that is difficult. yeah um we build yeah. churches for people like us and that's um i mean that that really is what um trying to do contextualization well is trying mm-hmm. to to get at is how do we understand other people for the purpose of having healthy spiritual community for them or yeah. sorry not not for them as if we're we're just performing this, but like, how do we have this healthy community together
0: when right. it's really when it's yeah. really
1: healthy there's 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 a community that forms together between uh between these these sides and and that's where um the the theory that's behind it um, has has been interesting to dig into um, there's
0: yeah let's let's unpack this a little because you've there's a lot there that you've talked about and I, and I, I want to give like a silly example that when I think about kind of the broader term you're thinking about of just trying to communicating uh, what you're so enmeshed with to outsiders I remember uh, a, a probably a year out of college, I went to work at a 24 hour fitness as like a sales guy. Yeah. And we would, we would, you know, we were trying to sell memberships. So every day people would come in and I try to give them a pitch about why they should th- plunk down 125 bucks uh, to buy a membership. And I remember like one day, like, you know, the membership was like $50 off or $75 off. I'm like, this is such a good deal. How can people turn it down? And then I remembered like, wait a minute to them. Like, Seventy-five dollars off means nothing because it's the fifty dollars they're still gonna have to pay that they didn't have to pay yesterday.
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's the that's the sales trick in it is that right <laughs> and all of that. Uh, but 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 we see that in uh, you know in, in trying to find ways to connect, find ways to to appeal to people, and um, and, and and frankly, like we're we're competing for people's attention, and yeah. and that's yeah. where if if something. If an invitation to Christian community requires someone to do more work, to even begin to start to form a relationship, um, there's just there, there can be unnecessary barriers to that. And that's where, um, you know, something like like you bring up um, uh, fitness centers. Um, mm-hmm. If you think of uh, thinking about CrossFit gyms is is a big way to think about this. There's people who will go into industrial sections of a city that they've never been in. They will follow a sign into a back alley.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what a in, great order example. To, in order
1: to do punishing physical activities. Yeah. That's, that, that's, um, but, but think about how, like, how many, how much barriers. people have to, yeah, how many barriers there yeah. are to get to the point of, of find, but people find a community there. And when you find mm-hmm. a community there, then, yep. you, like, you're, you're trying to, to pull people into it. It's so, like th- that. I mean, that CrossFit might be one side of that equation, the other side would be like, uh, I mean, I don't a a um a franchise gym who's, who's, whose whose yeah. whose name is well known. I I don't want to get you yeah. in trouble with like <laughs> naming, having to pay for royalties. But um, who would like put who would who would want to put their their gym at a you yeah. know, major cross streets, have big windows, big signs in the Brea Mall. In the Brea Mall, yeah, that that um, yeah. and that I th- I mean that we can do kind of a comparison to think about churches. Like, are we are mm-hmm. there churches that that their community, the power of community is so strong that you will cross all those barriers? We like to think that we have a strong community like that. Or do you you try and have a a, a bigger front door so that people can find it? And that's, I mean, there there are all sorts of other unhealthy things that can happen in that dynamic, but...
0: Yeah, it's really complicated. And when we think of, when I'm thinking about uh, Orange County and for those who have any kind of connection to evangelical church in the last 30 years, the name Rick Warren Saddleback comes to mind and the idea of the homogenous unit principle, which I think, did it originate with him or what? Oh,
1: well, I'll tell you the story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Tell me the story. Tell our listeners the story.
1: So um, the the homogenous unit principle is this idea that uh, people generally, people Mm -hmm. like to, like to be with people who are like them. Um, that yeah. that we, we generally gravitate towards people who are like us, and um, that was that was applied into church growth by um, by a missiologist named Donald McGavran, and Donald mm-hmm. McGavran actually was a disciple. He was part of the Disciples of Christ. And um, he was at Northwest Christian College, which is now Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. Um, he, he had worked out this homogenous unit principle while he was a missionary and church leader in India. And the main focus for him while he was in India uh, was how do we develop these churches that make sense for, for Indian Christians to be a part of?
0: Mm-hmm. Indian
1: Christians shouldn't have to learn English and, and pretend to be English in order to go to church. Yeah. Um, and the the theory was that when you had these churches that made sense in their local context, that it would lead to these natural. He called them uh, people group movements. You would have mm-hmm. into, you you would have um, uh, large conversion events. Um, large. Co- it was mainly talked about conversion in that setting, but mm-hmm. really it was talking about like how do we develop a healthy church in, that's that's appropriate for that space, and. And the main part of it had, had to had to do with this assumption that people should not have to change their culture to convert to Christ. People should not have to change who they are to okay. um, to belong to a Christian community. Yeah. And uh, so so he was in Eugene um, with that, um, and then he was invited down to Fuller Theological Seminary to start the um, school of, of church growth. And while he was there at, at Fuller, um, got connected with a lot more... Um, evangelical ideas, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was always a part of the, he stayed part of the disciples. Um, and there's a lot that's that we can see in our tradition that's meaningful, um, that kind of like, that were the seeds for some of that, um, which mm-hmm. is part of what excites me in trying to like take some of these good ideas and bring them back to inclusive, progressive churches.
0: Because yeah. I mean, we
1: would say things too, like, well, people shouldn't have to change who they are. To be part right. of the Christian community, that's that that's a good thing. Um, yeah. But where this, um, I mean, you mentioned Rick Warren before, and where yeah. this, um, where where this kind of came together, um, in 1993, Rick Warren finished his uh, his doctorate of ministry at Fuller, um, okay. and and he he had applied this homogenous unit principle, or he, he looking at this homogenous unit principle in the context of Saddleback Church. Uh, so the title of his dissertation was new churches for a new generation church planting to reach baby boomers and so 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 he took this 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 um, church growth theory and applied uh it or applied it specifically to how do I reach baby boomers and even more than that baby boomer baby boomer men who are living in the suburbs of Orange County
0: I gotta I gotta butt in here and say I don't know if I still have a book on my shelf but good old Saddleback Sam right Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that oh, and then from that, um, I mean, where where he like the popularized with the purpose-driven church, um, mm-hmm. that that thinking was spread to a lot of churches as this is the way to do church. That's that wasn't yeah. that wasn't his intention. Um, okay, th- that people should take this and just replicate it, but it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it was to take that idea of of understanding who you are as a religious community. And who you're trying to reach and and make those connections um mm. i i think that there there was in that in that era um there were a lot of people who just tried to to copy it but if you're not yeah. in, if you're not in the same context if you're not right. in suburban orange county with a housing boom yeah you're not going to have that same result but we but we do see similar results when when people if people do similar things if you're planting an evangelical church in a suburb that's building houses for white people yeah. you're going to become a mega church yeah that's yeah i i that's not a scientific study but it's true <laughs> um, but there's something yeah. that that that, um, that that Don McGavern says about that too e- even as he's talking about his it, it, some of the early writing about this church growth theory, he 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 cautions people about taking it too seriously. he's because mm. he says that um, you know even with all of the best theory, there are churches that should not grow that do, yeah. and there's churches yeah. that do grow that really should not. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of I, I take that as kind of some foreshadowing that of how we get into some of the um, some of the problems of not just churches that are too big, but but churches that are not a fit for their community, or mm-hmm. you, or or internalizing some of the cultural patterns that they they shouldn't, um, like with this Brahma Mall th- thinking, you know, it, it the, yeah. that that yeah. that can get you to thinking that our spiritual formation is really cons- uh, transactional consumeristic. and consumeristic. Yeah, um, uh, and it it you miss people who, who are not economically viable church members
0: yep. yep. or
1: your, your church leadership excludes people because they're not economically viable. And that's, yeah. um, you know, it, so, so it's not about how we contextualize, it's what things do we incorporate into our religious community that, that we shouldn't, um, we generally call this syncretism in, uh, uh-huh.
0: yeah yeah Um,
1: that might be a term that people are familiar with that has some some
0: i mean generally it's used in like uh, world religion studies Mm -hmm. right yeah the idea of blending world religions but your point is blending cultures a little bit yes yeah cultural elements
1: it it, it can happen both ways because religion is such a big part of culture that um, yeah it's hard to it's hard to incorporate religion without incorporating culture because it has to live somewhere um, but syncretism would be a way that we might be used to thinking of this unhealthy type of contextualization. Okay. Um, and then we can apply that back to us the, of saying, you know, a our our marketing culture of the mm-hmm. U.S. that is a syncretism that that the evangelical church has with our American culture.
0: Um, yeah. We're fair. Just, we're, fair.
1: But when we've talked, when we've when we've held syncretism as this is what those people do over there. Um, we yeah. don't apply that back to ourselves. Yeah. And 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 you could apply that same that same type of thinking to. Um, I mean, I I'll, I'll dunk on evangelicals all day long if that's <laughs> if, if that will uh, boost your viewer count. But but it's something that we uh, that we know. That, know. that we have to be aware of um, in in inclusive progressive churches too. That mm-hmm. what are cultural elements that we that we um, absorb unintentionally yeah um, there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of whiteness that we've absorbed unintentionally mm-hmm. that we've maintained intentionally um that um there's a lot of rainbow washing that we do of our churches that mm-hmm. um a lot of greenwashing, um a lot of performative token participation um so there's, yep. like there's still a lot of work for and those are things that that um those are things that happen in the culture at large. So it can we don't always see when we're doing those same things. We think that we're doing better, but that's a pretty low bar for us
0: yeah. to clear. Well, let's talk just – let's get into some specifics here about kind of like what are some – I mean we have kind of talked around it, like pros and cons. Like can you provide more like specific examples? Like obviously a pro would be like, hey, being – applying the homogenous unit principle you might be able to really target uh a demographic in your community to reach a negative would be you're you're excluding by you know by principle you're excluding someone else potentially in your community so talk to more about some of those pros and cons yeah uh and then maybe like how where does this get off the rails (laughs) um
1: (laughs) well you know i think a, a beneficial part of it is is being more intentional about the desire to invite people to healthy Christian community. Hmm. And that is, um, I think part of, of what we have in our, in our progressive Christian spaces is we assume that people already know that they're welcome. We assume that people already know that they're invited and they don't know it. Yeah. And, and it's something that people who are already familiar and feel safe in a in a church, um, they don't realize the distance between yep. um, between where they are and where, where someone else might be. So, um, so so thinking along these lines helps you to see what wh- what you're missing. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: It helps you to think about the barriers that you have. Um, we had this at uh, when we started going to to, uh, to our church. Um, we had two young kids and mm-hmm. there was there was one other um uh mother with a young child who was part of the church um mm-hmm. there, there were a lot of people who were empty nesters and mm-hmm. and they loved kids they loved having kids in church they just hadn't had right. kids in church for such a long time or yeah um and and the um the one mother and daughter who were there um were were so tightly knit in that community that it was like having aunts and uncles um, and, and grandparents oh, everyone there yeah um, yeah but the so the th- being able to think about what are the barriers to a young family starting to come to our church mm-hmm, um, that mm-hmm. that they would kind of fall back on like oh like well we used to do this in the 70s. Well, yeah what a parent is looking for in 2020, 2021, is not what yeah. parents were looking at in 1970, um, but and so it, that, it took some intentionality to to unlock that desire from people in the congregation. To like you say that you really want us to be here, but we we don't know until you show us. Um, yeah, and like our, our kids are loud, and I mean we're loud. So <laughs> um, <laughs> and we were stubborn enough to stay there. At, like as we as we dealt with some of that, um, mm-hmm. if we were also carrying some religious trauma if we were also carrying some hesitation yeah. about being in church space at yeah. all it would be so yeah. much easier to just say like you know what like this is... and and i mean rightfully so to be like it's not it's not safe for our kids we don't know if they're right. really going to be a part of this here um so there and so that so it'd be part of like if 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 the people that you were trying to connect with are are people who would have young kids Um, Mm -hmm. that's something that you need to be mindful of. How do we connect with, with this? And, um, to, to, I mean, there can be so many examples from, from megachurches because I'm in megachurch central here, but there's, there's a, um, there's a church next door, uh, sorry, in the next town over, um, their whole children's department was designed by, um, contractors for Disney
0: wow and so wow because
1: part of their thinking is if kids are excited to come to church if kids are asking their parents to go to church then the parents are gonna come and and there's this um there's this myth um that if a if a father becomes a part of the church that the likelihood of the rest of their family coming to church it's very heteronormative and it's very nuclear family centric Mm -hmm. and it's statistically garbage but oh really that's interesting yeah it's it's one of those things that like gets passed around and enough people start to believe it there's if that were if if that were true if that were true then we would have more men in church than women
0: so the so the idea is just so i'm clear and our listeners are clear is that the idea is that we think of like the, the, the 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 mom Again, to use our nuclear family analogy, we think that the mom is usually the driver for church. And this idea that you're saying is bunk is that if we can get the dad to want to be a part of the church, then
1: yeah, this is this this is the bunk. And if if your readers, um, sorry, if your listeners want to read a book, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it 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 digs into some of this um, masculinity crisis that the evangelical church is trying to 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 remedy. And it's this yeah. it's idea that um, churches are yeah. that that mainline churches especially they are too feminine, and yeah. and that and that's the reason why men don't go to church. And so churches, following um, you, know, f- you know, following their homogenous principle, this thinking is: if we can get men to come to church, and men are the spiritual leaders of their family, then th- then the rest of the, the rest of the family is going to come. So how do we get the husband? To interested in church, coming to church, um, and you can do all, and and then you know you you do lots to make the husband feel comfortable in church, um, to mm-hmm. the neglect of non-husbands. Um, you know you you yeah. you're, you're not going a... you're not going to teach about mutual submission and how a man needs to be taken care <laughs> of of his wife um, and making sure that she is fully affirmed and yeah. healthy. In marriage um, you're going to fall back on some of these um, complementarian ideas and male headship um, because those are things that feel good to people who are looking for that
0: yeah there's a big church I won't say its name in my part of the world and they're I mean that it's obvious they are male-centered like white straight male that is their demographic they're going after and I think I think it extends beyond just teaching Michael like like, ministry opportunities, like, yeah. you know, where, like, the men can go out and do, like, I don't know, go to the range or something, like, really macho like that. And the women are like, hey, let's, the women's ministry is like, let's sit around and have coffee.
1: Yeah. Women serve and men get to have adventures and do yeah. the actual leadership. And and I'd say that, um, and that's part of a, that's part of a contextualization as well. What does your leadership structure look like? And mm-hmm. an an all male boardroom is trying to recreate a certain type of culture that people feel comfortable mm-hmm. with, and mm. that that is is changing. Um, even the way we talk about leadership. Um, you know, at our church we have an elder board. That's mm-hmm. where else do you have an elder board? Um, it, yeah. But yeah. but is it effectively like talking about a board of directors for a nonprofit? Um, so. Mm-hmm are we, do we adapt to say we have a board of directors because that's something that makes sense to people who are not already. Yeah, churchy.
0: yeah, um, yeah.
1: Do we have, um, and, and how do we invite people into leadership opportunities? Like right. that we, we've sanctified committee structure and mm-hmm. um, rules of order for, yep. for, for meetings. Yep. When that's a really foreign concept And for people, for people to be successful in that environment, they have to learn a different language. They have to learn a different culture. And so that's part of how you could apply apply this homogenous union principle as well, is are we requiring people to convert to our church culture in order to be a part of being here?
0: Um, What a great way to turn it around. Yeah, that's a great principle.
1: And the, you know, some, some cons to this, we've already talked about some of them. You know, you might, Hyper focus on a demographic, and that leads you to do things that aren't that aren't healthy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you you won't know who you're excluding because it it looks like you're meeting your your goal. Um, it looks like yeah. It looks like there's yeah. activity. There's people coming in. There's people who are are finding meaningful spiritual community, um, but you don't see who's missing. Or when there when there is a problem, um, it's easy to just try and remove that, remove that person who's causing a problem and assume that someone else Mm. will be available who can meet their need. And it's a way to kind of, um, I don't know, like you can focus so much on yourself and let other, let other churches handle your, or carry water for you. That like,
0: um, I think about I think yeah. about
1: um, our own church and there's probably you know a lot of a lot of um, progressive churches are like this. How many people? How many ex-evangelicals end up coming to church with uh-huh. us who have this religious trauma that yeah. now, um, now a major part of our ministry is yeah healing trauma and being yeah. and, I mean it's it's a blessing to be part of someone's journey in healing religious trauma.
0: That's a lot it, of work. And it,
1: yeah, and it, and it's something that um like it would be better if the religious trauma just didn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. um so so you the but if we exist in a if if in Christianity we exist in an ecosystem and you have forgive this analogy, but like if you have someone who's polluting the stream upriver and we're mm-hmm. fishing downriver, that we're not in a situation to be to be, um, responding in, in, in the best way that we can. Um, and, and as much, and whenever we talk about, whenever we're critical of who's polluting the stream up river, it comes across Mm -hmm. as divisive or, um, you know, that we're, we're just, we're, we're bitter or jealous. Um, when really we want, you know I want Saddleback or any of these other mega churches, I want them to be healthy spiritual communities. I want them to be, um, I don't want them to be traumatizing people, <laughs> um, because they're able to do ministry in a way and and connect with people in a way that um, mm-hmm. th- that our church doesn't. Like w- we can be different um, and still yeah. Yeah. And still be um, be connected in, in purpose. And that's you know, and and then you can we can see how um, you know this desire to connect with a specific group of people it can lead you to some strategies um, for for um and recruiting and assimilation is is the term for it mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. you know I, I know a few people like their 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 job title is pastor of assimilation yeah and it it sounds like this sci-fi borg concept <laughs> yeah um, yeah and it but it's something that that i i think about how much like it's it's a good idea even if the word <laughs> is wrong like how do so how, how do we help people see that they belong to this community? How do we mm-hmm. how do we help people connect with other people who are part of this church? Um, the so one of the things I'm working on um, with our church are just some of the materials to do that in a more intentional, streamlined way. Because we would tell people when they come to our church, well, if you really want to get involved, join a committee.
0: Yeah, and, yeah. Um, that's that's talk about a homogenous yeah, unit principle. Uh-huh.
1: Um, but to think about like how do we how do we share who we are at the right speed for someone um and i think back to that's a
0: great way to say it to
1: thinking along the lines like if you were to to if you were to join a nonprofit um and you were volunteering for them what kind of information would be helpful you'd want to know about the mission and the history you'd want to know about finance you'd want to know who the who the, the leaders are and who where you're supposed to be and what time so like there is an expectation that people will communicate these things and that we can yeah. communicate these things without scaring people off. Um, yeah. But I think we get into we get into some other um, uh, some other issues as we start start to drill down into these um, homogenous unit principles. Um, we might think about demographics, um, like shopping at the Breyer Mall. But um, mm-hmm. you we have um, you know ways that we segment marketing already, like soccer moms NASCAR dads that was a big part of yeah. um, past elections yeah. um, that I mean churches can get granular in, into exactly who they're trying to reach in that regard um, but something that that we've started to see more take off is how churches are using data mining and algorithms to find people who are likely to look for religious community um, and mm. and some of that can be you know some of that can be, useful but it also gets into some Mm -hmm. some kind of shaky ethical ground like if if you know that someone who is who is um you know has been recently divorced is more likely to a woman who's recently divorced is more likely to join your church then are you are you trying to find metadata that looks like someone just got divorced for you to put an ad in their social media to say join our our um our di-
0: yeah, post-divorce, post-divorce care, care, group.
1: care group, and I mean, the on one hand, that's a very loving thing to do—to to know, like, let's yeah. reach out to people who we know need us. But it can also be a very manipulative thing to do. Um, yeah. And th- the more that you dig into some of that that data, the ethical part is: are we are we preying on vulnerable people and trying to yeah. recruit them under these these false terms? And are we trying to make our algorithm strategy look like the spirit? Are we trying to use our oh, man. are we trying to use our algorithms algorithm strategy to make people think that God has led them here? And that's that's hard to like if you're not getting into this like missiological nuts and bolts, <laughs> um, it's it's kinda hard to see. And if that's the system that you're in that that, hey, we're using yeah. technology, we're using strategy, we're reaching the lost and, and it's the spirit. That everything everything works. Um, and, and there can just be, there, there's so much that can be, be dangerous in that. Um, there's a lot yeah. that's come out, uh, or I shouldn't say there's a lot that's come out because I, I don't want to assume that everyone knows things about this, but um, in regards to how um, in elections data has been used, um, how yeah. you have um, churches that, that might have their own app. Um, there's questions about how that data gets used, um, how that data can get yeah. used, how that data can be sold and then used. Um th- there's uh, some links to how uh, data was used. Megachurch app user data was used to put political ads in front of church members, knowing that they would be more likely to vote for certain candidates. Um, wow! That and so so it so, has to do with like how does this metadata get shared? Who does it belong to? Yeah. And if you're and I mean, if you're a part of a church, you might sign up for an app because you think, oh, like this is a nice way to get a daily devotional every day, but. You, do you read the terms and services? Do you do? You, do you know what the church is doing with your data? No. Um, do no you, like, no are, one does. Is it is it tracking you? Does it know when? Is there is there someone at the church who is who is being able to check a box to say, oh, Michael has only been on campus ten times this year. How do we? I mean, how do we get him on campus more?
0: I think they do because I remember talking about a church app a couple years ago, and I think it had that kind of geo targeting where it could kind of. No, if you're in you know the geofence and it would kind of give you alerts like here's the daily bulletin or something yeah so well let's we could talk about this all day but for sake of time let's end let's let's take a break before let me ask you one more question before we okay. take a break with this question um like all this th- stuff you talk about is kind of like the the nightmare scenario of why progressives. Christians don't want to think like this. I remember even in Bible college, like we talked through these lists of like what made people more, I don't want to use the word susceptible, but it's kind of fair of like, you know, a divorced woman, a death of a child, death of a parent, you know, those kind of things. Even in Bible college, we talked about like what made them more quote unquote open to receiving the gospel. So for sake of these reasons and not wanting to be icky or unethical or you know whatever all of your listeners should Um, know
1: that we are good people so whatever (laughs) question you ask just hear it in the context of lauren is a good person
0: thank you michael how can can progressives use this way use this kind of thinking in a way and still be ethical responsible people
1: wow i um I, I really wish that we could, but I don't know if that's possible that, um, but, but part of that, part of that is, um, I, knowing that this field of, of, um, data mining and, um, algorithm use is so, so new and so, um, so hidden that, um, Mm. the, it's hard to find any examples of it being used positively because it's 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 used to drive capitalistic goals. It's I mean it's yeah. used to put products in front of people to spend their money on. It's used to identify who is vulnerable for um, financial abuse. Um, yeah. And and yeah. and so to think about like how is that something of the culture that that needs to be redeemed? Um, is that something? Th- about culture that is is possible to be redeemed. You know, can mm-hmm. um, can dehumanization and oppression be used for the church? Um, yeah. And there might be some short-term gains, but it's hard to see how those things, unless they are radically, systematically demolished, and then rebuilt, um, it's hard to see that being used in a healthy, affirming, liberating way. I think there's, I think that there are some ideas that lead people to using Mm -hmm. that tool, like the homogenous unit principle or other intentionality, other other, um, missional strategies that can be useful. But for that technology specifically, it's it's really hard to know that that's going to be, um, that that's going to be something that can be a long term benefit
0: yeah well i hate to cut you off but let's let's leave it there uh let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions all right we're back with michael shepard and michael always tell people you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to uh but if you're pope for a day what do you want to do what's your day like
1: well i um this is an american centric answer and i assume that that Mm -hmm. um you know by by pope, you I mean I just have authority over the universal church. So, um, the, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I I would man. I or would mandate. You get to define
0: it as you want okay. to, really.
1: I I would mandate that all churches willingly publish nine ninety financial forms. This is kind of a nerdy answer to like what I would do as a pope. Um, there's a lot of more fun things, but this is a, it's a standard nonprofit financial disclosure that churches aren't required to do, but it would just bring so much to light about financial mishandling or bad governance. So much nonprofits do it already. Um small nonprofits do it on a postcard. Um it yep. large like large nonprofits who can afford to hire auditors to to do it can do it. Um so you know it doesn't solve all the problems, but at least gets it out in the open.
0: This hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. I remember I was on Twitter a while back and I was like Someone was pushing for taxes or something for churches. I'm like, that's never gonna happen. But the nine ninety should happen for churches. I mean, so much, so much garbage financially happens in churches and just gets just gets thrown under the rug because no one knows. Yeah. And and so it hap- we could spend all could. day on that, that.
1: That'll be something I'll come back to and talk about. Nine nineties. <laughs> but it's something it, but it's also something you know, there are these abuses at at huge mega churches, there's abuses at tiny churches. Mm-hmm. Down the street, and but a yeah. nine ninety is a way yeah. to, to at least get that information to the public, um, and so yep. people can make those decisions themselves.
0: A theological or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life.
1: Oh, I, I had a couple of these, and mostly just people who are interesting to me in history, who I uh-huh. um, I just I wish we knew more about. Um, uh, one of them, um, Sorgathani Becky, um, she was the daughter-in-law of Genghis Khan. And oh. she was a Christian, and had a major push f- within, you know, the, the Mongol Empire of how do we, how do we bring Christianity to be part of our empire? And um, the the popes at the time didn't think it was worth doing.
0: Interesting. So, <laughs> interesting.
1: Got kind of stuck in geopolitical um, area there. Um, someone else, uh, Michael the Deacon. He is uh, an Ethiopian, um, part of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, he, mm-hmm. he met with Martin Luther, uh, as a way, uh, Martin Luther, um, Michael the Deacon traveled to Germany, met with, uh, uh-huh. Martin Luther basically to tell him like how the Ethiopian church works and how the Ethiopian church is healthy without Rome. And, Interesting. Uh, and that kind of helped support Mar- Martin Luther with the Reformation. Interesting. Um, that, uh, yeah, that, that, and, and that, the, that he left that meeting in full communion with Martin Luther, which was mm-hmm. which was something that not many other theologians got to have, because <laughs> Martin Luther did, wow. didn't go into full communion. Yeah. With him. Um, and then yeah. the, the other group um, are Christians who were in the U.S. people who or um, Africans who were Christians who who were brought to the U.S. and enslaved, um, who had Christianity mm-hmm. before being enslaved. Um, you had you had Congolese. Christians, you had Catholic Christians, um, who mm-hmm. were, um, were, were brought to the U S and had, had a Christianity before their slaveholders, um, introduced mm-hmm. them to, to their Christianity. And, um, we actually, you know, there's, there's some history about these Catholic Protestant, um, uh, conflicts, um, within enslaved communities mm-hmm. because that you had, they were bringing their religion already. And just, they just, it's fascinating mm. to me how, like, even in such an oppressive situation, you had a historic faith that was not based on white Protestant oppression. And so just that, yeah. um, I mean, that that whole era is tragic that we've lost that history and the ability for people to tell mm-hmm. their history and be proud of that. Um, but to know that that there was, even in that, that oppression, there was this seed of a gospel that was authentically African um, and that would have traced itself you know, across the Atlantic, in the Congo, back to Ethiopia, back to Philip the Eunuch. No, to Philip with the Eunuch in sure uh, in acts yeah. that you know. Th- there's so just that that whole scenario just it just fascinates me, and I wish that they, I wish that we knew more about it, and I wish that um, yeah that it would just be possible.
0: Well, I love I love these these uh, these perspectives you're bringing. Um, what do you think history will remember? From our current time and place,
1: I think I think that it will be remembered as a time in which a private personal life ceased to be expected. I think that for
0: and I oh. think that for many
1: folks, um, religion is supposed to be private, and so uh-huh. I think that's going to. For our, our, our religious history, I think that will cause some problems. Of if we are not private people, we live online, we have our information available online, um, we we share very personal things about us with mm-hmm. strangers, um, and there's there's yeah. just more of a sense that um, uh, you know you you share your your identity is meant to be lived out loud. Um, it's 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 not just something yeah. personal. Um, But religion is one of those things that we treat like a personal private thing um that that we have to think about what that means for um for public space and what that means and what that means in healthy ways that people live their faith out loud in very destructive ways Um, we don't want to do that Mm -hmm. um and i and i think we see some of that in um uh like with what william barber is doing with the poor people's campaign with um Mm -hmm. Guthrie Grave Fitzsimmons, his book Just Faith and, and the Religious Left, um, what does it look like to make our mm-hmm. religious convictions, our religious life, in affect our public policy in ways that aren't just replicating destructive patterns. We could spend a whole, whole yeah. lot of time talking about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, I'm going to spring this on you, um, question, Michael, because I've changed my question since I sent you these notes. Uh, what do you hope for the future of Christianity?
1: Oh, I... I hope I hope that we are able to become more more comfortable, more familiar with new questions. Mm, and I I, like I there's just so much about our theology right now that are they're responding to questions from 200 years ago. And those questions are based yeah. on assumptions from 400 years ago. Um, and yeah. and as, as our world is changing so much, um, I mean, climate change creates new theological questions for us. And mm-hmm. um, the more we understand about biology and neurobiology, the more we think about living beyond earth, yeah. um, those are theological questions um, that we can't just read the Bible and have the answer. So that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, ho- so I'm hopeful that we become a little, a little better with um thinking new questions and not feeling like it's so that it, that it's so extreme i mean like our question tonight like you know can what should churches do with with data mining we're not going to mm-hmm. open up the bible and find yeah. find the verse that tells us what to do with that um
0: i mean you have to dig pretty deep to build a theological case for Data mining, yay or nay? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah.
1: And so that's um, and so that's what. So what? What I'm hopeful for is where I see um, people asking new questions and having having the freedom to explore that in ways that um, that can lead us to new places.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, for. Uh... Where can folks find out more about you? Um,
1: I'm on, uh, on Twitter. We'll probably link that some way in there, but it's at M-C-H-L, mm-hmm. Shepard, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. That's probably the best way, and I'll have a link there to my, my newsletter. Um, I'm working on a few projects right now and um, a book proposal about uh, missiology of progressive Christianity. And so if that's something that people are interested in, I'd love to connect more and uh, see where that takes us.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael, and may God's peace be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again, and go in peace.